Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads... It was just two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one who... Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him, betray them, in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Pastor and author John Piper is famously, is famous for quoting in his book, Desiring God. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. One of the most common expectations I believe that the world has on those who have faith in Christ, those who people who call themselves Christians, is that, that, that people that are Christians are supposed to take care of the poor. That it's just an expectation that the world has. That according to many, the mark of a true Christian Right? is someone who cares for the poor and sacrifices to meet the needs of those who are less fortunate. This is something that many people believe, so much so that when, that, that when people find themselves in need or they find other people in need, they actually point them to the church. There have been people who can actually help them themselves and point these people to the church. And there's almost this expectation that if a person calls a church with some kind of need, whether it's food or gas money or to buy a bus ticket, The church is somehow obligated to to help. That is the expectation of the world around us. And And at the same time, it's expected of the individual Christian as well, it seems like. That that they're morally obligated to always help the poor and never say no to anyone. That's what makes, you know, that what makes them Christians, right? That they help the poor. This is This is assumed as if this is the greatest way that we honor God. 
is through ministries of mercy. There's this assumption, I think universally, that that's the way that Christians honor God the best is through missions of mercy, meeting people's other felt needs, as if that's the highest form of worship that we can offer. And I know some Christians who have embraced this expectation as well, so much so that they also expect the church to meet everybody's physical needs. That the church simply just needs to do something about this or that. I mean, you hear it all the time. Well, the church needs to do this and the church needs to do that. Or they themselves, because they believe this, they themselves feel obligated to always help, even when it's apparent that the people that that they're helping are taking advantage of them. This expectation is that if you're a Christian, that is your primary job, your primary mission is to take care of the poor. But I want you to hear me very, very carefully. Christians should absolutely care about the poor. The church should always care about the poor. Loving people and meeting their physical needs is certainly an outworking of our faith. Meeting people where they are to help them is without question one of the ways that that Christians are to engage the world around them. God cares about the poor, and the church and his people should also care about the poor. But I want you to lean in here, and I want you to hear me on this. Loving the poor is not our primary mission. Let me say that again. I I want you to hear me. This is worth why theology matters. Loving the poor is not our primary mission. It's not. Loving the poor is not the mark of what makes a Christian a Christian. Regardless of what everyone else in the world thinks, loving the poor is certainly an outworking of what it means to be a Christian. It's a byproduct of what it means to be a Christian, but it's not the mark of being a Christian. You see, the mark of being a Christian is something greater than that, something more than that. Being a Christian is not about our love for other people. Now, please, I don't want you to put words in my mouth or misunderstand me. We are absolutely supposed to love other people. We're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. We're supposed to love other Christians the way Christ loved us. right? And the world will see that in us. But our being Christians is not about our love for other people. Our being Christians is about our preeminent love for God above all other things. That we love him supremely above everything else. That he is our greatest treasure. That he is of infinite worth to us. That he is above anything and everyone else. That he is our greatest desire more than anything else. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's the mark of a Christian. That Christ is not part of our life. That Christ is our life. And that's the truth that we're going to see in this text here, beginning of chapter 14. Of all the things that are happening in this text, it's easy to get lost. But the point is the preeminent worth of Christ, the infinite value of Jesus. That's where Mark is drawing our hearts and our attention to. So turn with me to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to begin in verse 1. And it says... It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. If you remember, we're nearing now the end of the Passion Week, which began the Sunday before when Jesus rode in on the back of the donkey, right? 
proclaiming by his actions that he is the king and the Messiah. And the entire city was excited by his arrival. They were electric. They were celebrating, right? He was at the height of his popularity, and everyone expected him to come and ascend to David's throne, right? This is, is Passion Week, right? And this Passion Week will end in a few days from this point in the story with Jesus' death on the cross, his burial in a tomb, and then his resurrection again the following Sunday. But for the moment, it's late Wednesday afternoon, and the Passover is on Friday, which really for us is going to be Thursday evening because that's how they mark days, is evenings and mornings. Right? And that's when they would, they would actually eat their, their final pat this this Passover meal, and it says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, Not during the feast, lest there be any uproar from the people. Now, there's a lot to think about here because what I want you to realize is that in this text here, the reason why it's important for us to keep the entire book of Mark in context here is there are a lot of threads that are coming together now. There are a lot of things that Mark has been dealing with he's going to repeat in this text. Right? First of all, this, this little section reminds us that Mark likes to use a literary device through which he highlights a particular important truth. And this, this literary device is called bookending. Right? Some people call it sandwiching, but it's bookending. This is where he takes, where, as we talked about before, where he bookends an important theme or an event with 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 two related events to each other. Mark uses a similar or related event to act as bookends at the beginning of or an end of of a particular section. Right? It's, it's really easy to miss, but it's here, and it's here for a reason. Notice this section begins with the Pharisees wanting to kill Jesus, but they can't. And it's going to end with Judas coming to them, giving them the opportunity to do what they want to do. The scribes and the Pharisees wanting to kill Jesus serves as the beginning of the section. And, right, and then they're getting to be able to do that serves as the end of the section. And what's in the middle of these two ends is what Mark is trying to communicate to, to us. It's, it's the, really the heart of the issue. It's the truth that he's emphasizing here. That's why we look at this section as an entire whole. This is very similar to what we saw when Jesus used uh, miracles of, of Jesus healing a blind, two different blind men to make a spiritual a point about spiritual blindness that spanned chapters 8 through 10. If you remember, Jesus right, opens this section by healing a blind man, but he doesn't do it all at once. He does it in stages. He, open, he opens his eyes initially, giving him partial sight, and then he heals him all the way, giving him full sight. And, the, and there was a point... To the section, right? If you remember back in chapter 8, Jesus, after healing this blind man, he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ. Jesus said, that's right, well done. And then right after that, Jesus tells them that he's going to die and be crucified. And then Peter rebukes him for that, displaying the fact that he doesn't really actually have full spiritual sight yet. He's still partially spiritual blind, and, 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 and Jesus then rebukes him and the disciples for the fact that they are not seeing the truth. And then three times during this section, Jesus tells them that he's going to be killed by his enemies, 
that he's going to be resurrected afterwards. And all three times, these men, after all three times, these men pretend like they don't understand what he's saying or they really don't understand what he's saying. And so Jesus then has to then teach them what it means to, to follow him. And we see that over and over again. And after the third time, Jesus explains that he didn't come to be what they expected of him, a military hero, but rather he came to give his life for a ransom for many. And after all that, then Jesus wraps up this section by healing a blind man completely. Right? This is the, the end of an important section. This section is about spiritual blindness. It's a literary device that Mark uses. It's it's the way that God has sovereignly designed for Mark to be written to emphasize the point. Well, the Pharisees, that's what we see here. The Pharisees wanting to kill Jesus and not being able to, and then Judas giving them the opportunity to do so, serves as bookends to this important truth that we're going to find in the middle of this text, which we're going to address in a moment. But in the meantime, the second thing I want you to notice about this is how they're seeking to arrest him by stealth or to kill him. Like they can't do it openly, right? But they want to kill him. They hate him. Well, what we see here is the ongoing hatred that the Pharisees have for Christ. The fact that they want to kill him is not a new development in the story. This is actually something that happened early on. If you remember in chapter 3 where Jesus healed the man with a withered hand inside of the synagogue on a Sabbath, they were watching him. And as soon as he healed him, they decided right then and there that they wanted to kill him. In fact, it said in um, chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They've been wanting to kill him for three years. This has been burning in them for a long time. They just haven't had the opportunity to do so. Jesus was, was, was at odds with the religious and political leaders in Judea for his entire ministry almost. And that continued all the way to this moment. But this hatred for Jesus, actually, the conflict with Jesus, really began to, to accelerate and come to a head when Jesus, the Messiah, comes into the temple at the beginning of Passion Week. And he makes a whip and drives out the merchants and the money changers and he pronounces judgment upon Israel, the temple, and the religious leaders. And if you remember, in chapter 11, verse 18, Mark tells us, if the chief priests... And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They wanted him dead. They wanted to kill him. But they couldn't, again, because of the crowd. That's why they sent different groups of people to him, if you remember, to question him and ask him difficult questions, trying to trip him up and trying to get him to say something that would get him in trouble. And he proved that he was their intellectual and spiritual superior. And so here what we have is Jesus demonstrating by his actions that he's the Messiah. He comes and he destroys you know, this makeshift marketplace in the court of the Gentiles. He pronounces judgment on Israel's leadership because they're unfruitful and unfaithful. And then at every turn they try to, you know, to trap him and he puts them in their place over and over again, making them look both weak and foolish. So now they really are seething with anger and frustrated and they were probably afraid of him because now he's politically powerful. The people love him and they, they see that he's the hope of, of Israel. And that's why they don't arrest him publicly to kill him. Not to mention it's even more difficult now. Why? Because it's Passover season. Why 
Is that important? Well, the people are coming from all around to celebrate what? The time when they were in bondage, being oppressed by another government and being freed by God. They already had this nationalistic kind of fervor and ascent about them. They, they already were feeling you know, this, this sense of national pride. The Jews were already primed emotionally for someone to step up in the moment and lead them to overthrow Rome. And many Jews saw Jesus as potentially that person. And so the city really quite literally was a powder keg, which means arresting him could potentially spark a riot and a full-on revolt. And no one in leadership wanted that. Not the Romans and not the Jewish religious leaders either. And so it seemed like they were stuck. They want to kill him, but man, they didn't want to take the risk to do it. At least not, not yet. Now, the third thing I want to draw your attention to here, it's important for us to see, this is going to really help us to understand this text, is, is this continued theme of outsiders versus insiders. Early on, Mark really established this sense that there are two kinds of people in the world. Very early, if we remember, we've heard me repeat this multiple times. There's only two kinds of people in the entire world. There are those that are inside the kingdom, and there are those who are outside the kingdom. Those who are in the kingdom, and those who are outside of the kingdom. There are believers, and they're not believers. There's only there's no middle ground. It's either or. The only thing. That matters is are you in the kingdom? And the one thing that marks, you know, that highlights is the fact that the religious people, because of their their religion, fancy themselves as the insiders of the kingdom. They believe themselves to be the insiders, but they are the ones that are actually on the outside. And those that they deemed unworthy, the castaways, are the ones who are actually inside the kingdom of Christ. In fact, Jesus said, the time is now, the kingdom is here. Repent and believe the gospel. That's how you get in the kingdom. And many so-called outsiders were doing just that, like Matthew, the tax collector. One of the most hated type of people in all of Israel. And and the people that that Jesus had had dinner with, the, the sinners and tax collectors. And even this woman like this in this story. These were the castaways who became part of God's family. These were the rejects that the religious elites would would say they'd never inherit the kingdom of God. And this truth reminds us that it's not about traditions. It's not about rules or rituals or religions that give us entrance in the kingdom of God. It's not about our status before men that gives us entrance in the kingdom of God. Rather, it is the grace of God through faith in Christ that we enter the kingdom. It's about full trust and dependence upon Christ alone that makes us the insider. And we're going to see this contrast between insiders and outsiders in living color between this nameless woman in this story and these religious Pharisees and even one of the apostles himself who will walk away from Christ. Because though he thought himself to be an insider, he truly was still on the outside. So look at verse number three. And while he was at Bethany, 
in the house of Simon the leper, and he was probably named Simon the leper because he probably had leprosy at one point and Jesus healed him. He's not concurrently the leper. That's just kind of the, how they remembered. You know that guy that used to have leprosy? I think in small towns, we kind of relate to that a little bit more because, like, it's funny. One of the things, one of the interesting things that I found moving to Boron was, is, well, what's that address over there? I, I don't know. It's just that street down there by that, you know, little truck over there, you know? That's, we just identify things by names instead of, so he was identified as Simon the leper, and, and Jesus was there reclining at table or eating dinner, and a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, the Apostle John, in his gospel, he identifies this woman by name. He says that this is Mary, the sister of Martha and the sister of Lazarus. But notice Mark doesn't name her. He says a woman. Now, why would he just not name her? Because it's not like he didn't know her name. I mean, this is Mark. This is Mark who's writing down Peter's account. Peter would have known her name. Peter would have been there. So it's not like he didn't know her name. And it's not like that Mark didn't value women, as some people might suspect. In fact, what we're going to see is quite the contrary. The reason why Mark doesn't name this woman in this text is because there's a theme in Mark that he has been developing throughout his gospel to make a very important point. And that is the theme of the faith of the unnamed woman. This is a theme that we have seen over and over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. A theme that Mark has been using to teach his audience about what real faith looks like. In chapter 5 of Mark, we encounter the unnamed woman who had faith in Christ that he could heal her if all she did was just touch his garment. She believed so strongly in his ability to heal her that she didn't even bother him and ask him to touch her. She just reached out and just touched the edge of his garment and she was healed. And Jesus told her, your faith has made you well. This is a picture of what faith in Christ is supposed to be. A complete confidence in his abilities. And then in chapter 7, we encounter the Gentile woman who knows Christ is the only hope that she has to cast the demon out of her her child. And Jesus initially ignores her. He doesn't pay attention to her at first, and she just gets louder and louder. And then he tries to just kind of like, he he actually says, well, you know, I'm not here for you. I'm here for... And she just goes right back with him and basically says, I'll take whatever I can get from you. Because she believed that he was her hope. Mark uses this as an example to remind us that true faith in Christ is a persistent faith that does not give up. And then in chapter 12, we see the widow, the nameless widow, who had two small copper coins that she gave in the offering while the Pharisees were giving large sums of money. And Jesus said that she gave more than all of them combined. And the reason, he said, is because she was giving out of her complete dependence on God in faith. That she gave all that she had, trusting that God was going to take care of her. The rich just give out of their excess. She was giving out of her poverty. This is a picture of complete dependence on God. And then again, in this text, we see an unnamed woman who, because of her love and devotion to Christ, takes this expensive ointment and puts it on Christ. This is an important theme that Mark's been developing to teach us about the nature of faith in Christ. 
And this leads to two things I really think that we should pay attention to. Number one, our relationship with Christ is not about our status. These are nameless women in history. There's no status here. These are the least of people, by the way. Like they were not seen as, as people, but property. Right? So our status before God has nothing to do with our relationship to him. Our stature in, in culture doesn't mean anything. Our achievements don't mean anything. Our social value doesn't mean anything. Faith in Christ is about dependence upon him no matter who you are. This is what we see over and over again in these women. These women are all in, trusting in Christ. Their faith in him is what defines them. Not their nationality, not their religion, not their, lack of, not their wealth or lack of it. Their faith and dependence on Christ is what defines them. The second thing is what we see is the way that Mark is using these um, stories is that Mark, like the other New Testament authors in the early church and Christ himself, had a high view of women. This is really important for us to see. The modern idea that somehow Christian faith is about is oppressive to women is just, is just plain nonsense. It's complete nonsense. When we read the Gospels in the New Testament, we see a, a view of women that is in stark contrast to what the culture was in the first century. At that time, like I said, women were seen as property. But Christ and the New Testament give them full value as people. Mark uses them as an example of what true faith looks like as opposed to the unfaithfulness of these powerful men. They're the complete opposites. I don't want you to miss that point. That's an important reference point for us. It was God who ordained for women to be the first ones to find the empty tomb. It was, it was a woman that Christ first appeared to after his resurrection. It was the Samaritan woman that Jesus spoke to about the water of life. It was the woman caught in adultery that Jesus protects. It was, it was this woman in this story that Jesus defends and lifts up as an example of what faith is. The fact is the Bible has a very high view of women. The only problem is our culture just can't stand the clear biblical distinction between men and women. God created men and women equal in value, but very different. They're different, but have complementary roles. And the culture says men and women are exactly the same. And, and you know, that might sound good to a lot of people, but that's just simply not the truth. We know it's not instinctively. It's not. Biologically, men and women are different. There's a lot of ways we're different. And the clearest possible way, I think the clearest example is that, is that no matter what we do and no matter what scientific advances we have, men are not going to have babies. God didn't design for that to happen. They didn't design them that way. It's completely natural for a woman. She, she's built for that. It happens by itself. Men, it's impossible. It's a clear distinction that there's something fundamentally different between men and women. It's God's design. It's how God created us. We have differences in abilities. And we also have differences in God-given roles. It is God's design that men lead their households and be the primary leaders of the church. Why? I don't know. I'm not God. That's just the way he designed it. And a lot of people don't like me saying that. A lot of people don't, especially today, right? 
get upset when I say things like that and I say this, your argument's not with me. Your argument's with God because that's what the Bible says. Ultimately, that's where you have to go back to. And if you don't believe me, then read Ephesians and read 1 Timothy, right? And then take your argument up with him. The fact is God has a design for men and women and he created us differently for different roles. But we are absolutely equal in value before God. The Christian faith is not oppressive to women, but quite the opposite. It has been the instrument that God has used to elevate the value of women around the world. And that's what we see here. This is an important point to understand. And so in this text, we see the unnamed woman come into the room and she takes out this flask of, of expensive fragrant ointment and she pours it on his head. And then it says, then there were some who, laid, who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like this? Now there's a couple of things just in that one statement for us to think about. First of all, Mark doesn't identify who these some are. He just says some. Now Luke says disciples. John identifies the some simply as Judas. I believe it was probably Judas, or he was maybe one of the some, because simply this is the way that the story works itself out. It ultimately, see, we see Judas leave the fold here to go betray Jesus. I think there's something in here that's connected to that. I would agree with what John is saying. But Mark doesn't tell us exactly who it is who and who's upset because it's really not the point. The point is what was said. We need to notice the statement. Why was the ointment wasted like that? You see, they're not just asking a question here. It's, quite, it's not just a question. They're making a statement. They're making a statement that what she is doing, what she's engaging in, is a waste. Her taking this perfume and putting it on Jesus in their eyes is a waste. I want you to think about that. What, what she is doing for, for Jesus, what they're saying is it's worthless, it has no value. It's a waste. Let that sink in for a second. Because I want you to think about your own life. Sometimes what you do for God will seem like a waste to other people. There are people that are just not going to understand what you're doing. I remember when I went back to school in 2011, some of my family members found out that I, went, I was going back to school and was going to pursue my degree and they asked, well, hey, what's your degree? I said, my degree is in religion and uh, with, a, with a major in theological studies and a minor in pastoral ministry. And they're like, religion? Why? Why can't you get something more practical? Why can't you get a more useful degree? Like a business degree, maybe. Maybe, you know, teacher's credential or something. Why not something that you can actually use? So they couldn't see that I was getting a degree in order to be of service to God and to God's people. But I didn't do this just because I wanted to do it. I did it because I actually wanted to be the greatest possible servant of God in his hands that I possibly could be. 
They couldn't understand the value of that. Right? They, were, they, they thought me pursuing this degree was a waste of time and energy and money. They thought my devotion to God was a waste. Likewise, some still think that me pursuing my master's degree you know, is a waste. I remember someone actually who started dating someone in this church years ago commenting on how irritated that he became by the fact that his girlfriend was trying to practice tithing. The idea for him of giving up 10% of his income or her income right, to, the, to the church to, to, for the work of God frustrated him. It really bothered him a lot. He's like, we could use that money for other things. It was a waste to him. Sometimes what you do for God will seem like a waste to others around you. I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that's a normal outworking of how people see things. If they don't understand, they're going to think that you're wasting your time. Why are you always down there at that church? <laughs> you already go to three Bible studies. Why do you want to go one more? And it, it seems like a waste to them. They're asking, why is she wasting this ointment like this? And then they said, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Understand, these guys were not being nice at all. They are being jerks. This indignation is really kind of like in your face. They were very upset. This really bothered them. They're like, this is really expensive stuff. 300 denarii. And what you need to realize is this, that's about equal to a year's wages. But if I can put that even in a little bit more perspective, you know, just above minimum wage is like 15 bucks an hour. 15 bucks an hour works out to be just over $30,000 a year. It's right? a lot of money. I don't care who you are. To take $30,000 and have it disappear like that, I mean, it's a lot. She took some fragrant ointment that was worth $30,000 in our money, and she took it and she poured it on Jesus' head, all of it, like that. $30,000, okay? Puts a little perspective on it, right? Okay, wait, wait a minute. Are you being hasty there? You don't have to pour it all out, do you? And not only did she pour it out, but she broke the flask doing it. Right? You see, she broke the flask so even the flask itself couldn't be reused. It was basically, she was all the ointments and the container, all for Christ, nothing left over. And they told her, you're wasting your resources. And they said that this should have been sold and given to the poor. We should have taken that money and given it to the poor. I mean, think about how much food you can buy for $30,000 for people. How many people can you help? If, you had 30, if I gave you $30,000 and said, hey, you need help people in this community, you can help a lot of people pretty fast. You'd also find it doesn't go as far as you'd like it to, but, but the reality is you can still do a lot of good. Now, why would they say this? Why take the money and give it to the poor as opposed to right, pouring it out on Jesus? Well, John tells us a little bit more of the motivation. He said that Judas is one who was asking the question, and his motive was selfish. He was in control of the finances and didn't really care about the poor. He was just in, interested in enriching himself because he was skimming off the top. That's, that's probably true. But, but why say this in particular? Why make this argument to try to compel others to kind of agree with him? Why this? He could have said, well, we could use the money for ministry. Hey, you know what? 
We're getting ready to storm the, the, the gates and, 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 you know, to drive out the Roman army. Why not buy swords? I mean, he could have used a lot of things that these guys would have related to. Why is he talking about the poor? Because obviously this is an argument that would have appealed to them and they would have been able to relate to. This would have been something that would have got their attention. You see, first of all, this was during the Passover and generosity for the poor was kind of an expectation during this time of year. This was a national holiday. This was a festival and a celebration. And it was customary at this time of year to be mindful of the poor on such occasions, which I think is something we can completely relate to. Think about what time of year it is for us. We're already talking about giving away Thanksgiving baskets again this year, like we've done for every year for like the last 12, 14 years. Why? Because we care about the poor. And then we're going to give out toys to kids, and we'll probably give out toys to more than 100 kids again, like we've done over and over again. Why? Because the holidays remind us to be generous for those who are in need. It's just kind of like intrinsic in the holiday. Holidays are an opportunity for generosity. What was the same for them? It was already on the mind. The poor would have been close to their mind this time of year. But that's not all. There was something even more underlying to this. It was actually a sense of their religious duty in that culture to take care of the poor, to provide for the needy. It was, again, which is a good thing because the scriptures encourage us to take care of the needy and the poor. When you read the Old Testament, you see references over and over to the needy and the poor. That's what they were called to do. But there's still even something more to it than this. There was this sense that giving to the poor was really a paramount spiritual activity. It was one of the greatest things that you could do from a religious perspective was to give to the poor. I mean, think about their theology. The Jewish understanding, if you remember, back in chapter 12, when Jesus was talking with the scribe, the scribe asked him a pointed question and said, what is the greatest commandment? And what we discovered in that discussion is that Jesus astounded him because he said, you need to love your Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. But the common understanding at that time, the common understanding was being taught at that time was the greatest commandment was to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what all the rabbis were teaching. That was the whole of the law. In fact, one of the rabbis had put it negatively and says, what you don't want people to do to you, don't do to them. It was always about people. They believed that the entire law was wrapped up in that one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is the, this is the highest form of the law, and the highest form of loving your neighbor is what? Loving your poor neighbor who can't love you back. And so there is a sense that, that one of the greatest things a person could do religiously was give to the poor. I mean, even now, people you know, do that publicly. Why? Because they know that everybody's going to approve of that. Especially if you gave a lot back then. It was the epitome of piety. That's why the Pharisees loved to give publicly in the treasury box where the coins made loud noises when they fell in before the public crowds. Giving the, the poor was highly esteemed in, in public. It was seen as the righteous thing to do. Oh, look how spiritual they are. Look how generous they are. They must be really close to God. That was the hallmark of being a good Jew or a good person. It was a hallmark of, of being, you know, the epitome of what, what, what they were aspiring to be. And that's, in fact, that's what many people today think is the epitome of being a Christian or a good Christian, giving to the poor, helping the poor. 
But here's the problem. Giving to the poor doesn't make anybody a Christian, much less a good one. And giving to the poor doesn't make anybody a good person. It just makes you somebody that gave to the poor. Because the fact of the matter is we see lots of different types of people give for lots of different reasons, and not all of them are good. Some people legitimately give out of the love of their hearts because they really, really care. Some people give because they just feel guilty. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you do something because you feel guilty, that's not a good reason to do it. One of the things I teach my kids all the time is don't ever do anything out of guilt. Because all you're doing is hurting yourself and them too. Some people give because they think they think it'll help their public image. Just think about all the businesses that give. I'm going to tell you one thing. I, what really frustrates me is how all these big businesses start talking about how they're donating food here and there and there and there. Right? The reality is, is that's the easiest thing that they could possibly do with, with the least trackable results. Because the fact of the matter is that there's lots of food resources in lots of different areas. And these businesses could actually do other things to help people. But that's the easiest thing to do. And it draws public attention. Look how wonderful we are. Buy our stuff. Some people give because they feel like it's their religious duty to. Not because they want to, because they have to. Right? Some people give because they believe that if they do, then God's going to turn around and bless them. It's like a bargain with God. Well, if I do this, then I know God's going to bless me. That's why I do that, because I want God to bless me. I give this because I want God to you know, bless me. Some people give because they were once poor too. And they know what it's like. And they don't want other people to feel what they went, went through. People give to the poor for lots of reasons. So let's be really clear about that. It doesn't make you a good person. Even jerks give to the poor. Sometimes just to placate their conscience. Even criminals give to the poor to curry favor with the public. And the truth is, lots of different kinds of people give to the poor. Not just Christians. Christians do give to the give. In fact, Christians are the most generous people in the United States of America, and people can argue with that, but the statistics don't lie. Christians are more generous than any other group of people. But there are a lot of non-Christian religions that give to the poor as well. Mormons give to the poor. Jehovah's Witnesses give to the poor. Muslims give to the poor. Even Scientologists give to the poor. I'm telling you, that's like one of the weirdest experiences I've ever had, by the way. Like, Zoe was in the hospital from her brain surgery, and right across the street was the Scientology building. We drove around the block one time just looking at the building. The next week, I get a brochure to the church sent saying... So you're interested in Scientology, here's how you can help and how we help the poor. I'm like, wait a minute, did they know I was, anyway, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But that being said, even Scientologists give to the poor. And, and you don't have to be religious either because a lot of non-religious people give to the poor as well. Secular people and atheist people give to the poor. Secular people believe that we should treat each other well, that we should be good to those that are less fortunate. Right? Non-religious people give to the poor. We even have, there's actually an organization in our community that is secular, that they are not religious or religiously affiliated, right? and they do help the poor in a lot of different ways. So this cannot be, then, the pinnacle expression of our faith, right? Like if, if, if the motives are, can be all over the map and anybody can do it, then it certainly can't be the mark of what a Christian is. 
Now, please hear what I'm saying, okay? Again, I want to make sure I'm clear. If you're a Christian and God has changed your heart, you will care about people who are in need. And if you are obedient to the commands of God, you will work to help those who are poor. It is the natural outflow of who we are in Christ. It's the outflow of what God is doing in us. Caring about the poor is a byproduct of being a Christian, but it's not the highest form of, of worship for us. It's not. It is the mark. It is not the mark of what it means to be a true believer. And the reason why I point this out is because in our country right now, there is a cultural movement that has influenced many churches. And this movement has led people to believe that what you do for other people is more important than what you believe. You hear it all the time. You see it on Facebook that your charity is more important than your doctrine. I've even heard Christians say, I don't care what you believe. I just care how you treat other people. That idea that how you treat people is more important than your foundational theology, that your generosity is more important than your personal devotion to God, that is a dangerous point of view. Because look around at what churches are bragging about as accomplishments. I mean, I've had an opportunity to look at a lot of different church websites and see what they're about. Right? And you listen to what they talk about, what they're doing with respect of being a church community, what defines them. And you hear them say things, oh, we've gathered this amount of food, and we have given away this many clothes, and we have built this many buildings, and this small group has done this project, and that small group has done that project, and we've raised money for this many wells in Africa. And, and they lift up these accomplishments as if they're the sign of what a healthy, growing church community is. As the sign of healthy, spiritually growing people, we must be close to God because look at what we're doing is the idea that they're conveying. But in the same churches, there's not an emphasis on discipleship and knowing who God is and the foundational truth of our faith. There's no emphasis on growing to understand who God is in the fullness of his attributes. There's no emphasis on true intimacy with God in worship. It's all external. And, when, and then when you think about this, you combine that with the fact that many people who profess to be Christians say there's many different ways to God. And a huge number of people who claim to be evangelicals, over half, say that the Holy Spirit is just a force. And the majority of Christians will tell you that loving God and loving other people is the gospel and a large people profess that Christ is their savior will say that there is no such thing as hell and what you will discover is that that there is a theologically anemic church in the world around us helping people to think that the evidence of their changed lives is what they're doing on the outside that this is the evidence of their salvation. That this is the evidence of their relationship with Christ. This is a new form of legalism, by the way. Hear me. We should do those things. And we do those things. We here at First Baptist Church give away food all the time. Just ask Matt and Aaron. They will tell you. People are knocking on their door all the time. They run our food ministry. We give away toys at Christmas to hundreds of kids. It's just what we do. We give away clothes for kids when they go back to school, when there was actually like going to school. We rally together and meet 
every possible need we can. We help people move, we fix coolers for people who can't fix them, we provide for the needs of our missionaries who serve poor people around the world, and we do those things, and we should do those things. But we do them because they're the supernatural byproduct of who we are in Christ. It's the outworking of who we are. But understand, as a church, we as a church are actually quiet about these things, and we don't talk a lot about them outside of the church, because these things are not the pinnacle of what it means to be a Christian. These are not grand accomplishments. These are the basic things that we should be doing. We should be taking care of the poor like parents take care of their kids. Like employees do their basic tasks at work. It's just what you do. This can't be the highest form of worship. It's a basic duty. In fact, in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says it like this. He says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping the sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come in at once and recline at the table? Come in and relax. Will you, he rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he say thank you because he did what he was commanded? He says, so you also, when you have done what you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've done only, that was our duty. Giving to the poor is our basic duty. It's not the pinnacle of our worship to God. It's not the pinnacle of our faith. It's not the height of, of how we worship God. It's not the mark of who we are. It's, and, it wasn't, and it wasn't for them either, even though that they thought that it was. That's why they believed that pouring this ointment out on Jesus, the Messiah was a waste. This expression of love and devotion that she was showing towards Christ didn't have any value to them. But I want you to see that it did have value to Jesus. In verse 6 it says, Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. This act of love and sacrifice was valuable to Christ. This was a beautiful thing in his sight. Just like the widow who gave all that she had, which both of these things contrast the rich Pharisees who gave out of their excess, or how about the rich young ruler who refused to sell what he had and give to the poor and follow Jesus. Jesus understands that she has sold, that she could have sold this ointment and she could have kept that money for security. For herself. I mean, think about having a year's worth of wa year's wages tucked away for an emergency. Being able to take care of your family, much less taking care of the poor. But she's taken this valuable resource and she has chose out of her love and devotion to sacrifice this valuable commodity in order to bless Jesus in that moment. In order to minister to him. In order to value him. You see, what Jesus saw in her was the fact that she valued Jesus above the ointments and above the money and above all the money could have bought for her. Don't miss that truth. She saw, he saw in her that she valued him above the ointments and the money and all the money could buy. Her act demonstrated that he was supremely valuable in her eyes. 
He was her treasure. He was her greatest desire. He was worthy. This, in this moment, was real worship. This was real faith. Again, proving that they are particularly spiritually blind, they missed this and said, why would you do this? And then Jesus says to them, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, I want you to hear what he's saying here. The first thing he's saying is that you're, he's not going to always be with them. In fact, he's literally hours away from not being with them. Because he's going to be arrested and then he will be crucified. So he won't always be with them physically, it's a truth. But the second thing, I want you to think about this theologically and about their theology. Right? Their theology was loving your neighbor was the whole of the law. Giving to the poor was the highest expression of that faith. And what Jesus is saying here is I am more important than that. Jesus is saying I am more important than the poor. That's what he's saying. Which then we would say, well, that'd be a pretty arrogant thing for, for, for someone like Jesus to say if he was just a man. I mean, if we heard somebody say, well, I'm more important than the poor, we'd be like, you're a jerk. You're really arrogant and full of yourself. But that's exactly what he was saying. But the thing is, is he's saying this wasn't arrogant because it's the truth. Jesus was not just a man. He was God incarnate. Again, Mark uses these truths to show us the reflection of who Christ is. He is God. You see, Mark continues to display a high view of Christ throughout his gospel. The only way that Jesus' words are not hypocrisy is for him to be supremely valuable above poor people. Mark is helping the readers to remind the readers that Jesus is not just some man who's having a meal with these disciples. He is God in the flesh. He is the Son of the Father, which means that he's way more important than the poor. That he's way more important than anything else in all of creation. He is God, the most valuable thing that exists. God is the greatest treasure above all other things. In fact, all things that have value ultimately are rooted in his value. All things that have value are a reflection of, of his ultimate value. And as such, he is worthy of our complete love and devotion and whatever sacrifice would be required for us to worship him. God is to be our supreme love. Hear me, church. If you don't hear anything else, hear that and walk out with that. God is to be our supreme love. He is to be our supreme joy. He is to be our greatest desire. He is to be the most important thing to us, more important than life itself. In fact, He is our life. As the song goes, Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. This is what this woman's doing for him. She is absolutely worshiping him and expressing his incomparable worth. I mean, think about this. She poured out $30,000 worth of scented perfume on him in an expression of her love. $30,000. I mean, think about that. She sacrificed $30,000 to say, you are worthy. The sad thing is, many people who profess to be Christians today 
and say they love Jesus can't spend five minutes with him in prayer or in the word. Many people who say, I love Jesus and he's important to me will ignore and despise his bride that he loved and died for. I love Jesus, but I can't give up the weekends to worship him. I love Jesus, right? but then they will live their life using all their resources that God has blessed them with on themselves and never ever sacrifice anything back to him. This woman gave up a year's wages in a moment to express how much she loved Christ. This is the truth that Mark is pointing at here. This is a truth that should convict us. This is a truth that should draw us closer to him and see how ultimately valuable he is. While those that were on the outside want to kill Jesus, and even one of his own will ultimately betray him, and while those who claim to love him are scolding her, she is giving up a year's worth of wages to momentarily express her love for Jesus. And Jesus says that it was beautiful. And then he said she had done what she could. And she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now Jesus, I believe, is interpreting her actions through his impending death. But it's unlikely that she actually knew that he was going to die soon. Some people say that she did. Some people say she doesn't. There's some disagreement amongst the scholars. But ultimately, that's not even the point or that doesn't even matter. She was simply expressing her worship and her love to the best of her ability because he was worth it. And Jesus says, And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, I've read that so many times and I have wrestled with this statement because it just seemed like such an odd statement. It just, you know, you know how sometimes like when you're reading the, the Bible and everything just kind of goes along and then something happens or be said and you go, that's weird. Like th that was for me because I'm like, okay, you don't even name her name here, right? But then you're going to say that she's going to be remembered with the gospel. And, and, and of all the faithful people in the world, in the Bible, and all the faithful things that people have done, that this is the one thing that you're saying that when the gospel is told, this is, that she's going to be remembered and memorialized for this. Why her? Right? And why this connected to the gospel? Well, it's really simple once you really figure out what's happening here. Because this is the picture of what worshiping God is about. This is the picture. Don't miss this. Right? Valuing God above everything else. That is what, what happens when we turn to Christ in repentance and faith. That he becomes our greatest treasure. That is what it means to trust in him. He becomes supreme to us in all things. The late R.C. Sproul actually wrote of this particular text. He says, our great and holy God owns all of creation. So all that we have is really his anyway. But he gives us resources to steward. And one way that we should show our gratitude for his gifts is to give back to him the things that we highly value. Let us be faithful to return to our creator his good gifts, and may we be willing to give up what is valuable to us for the sake of God's kingdom. True worship is valuing God above all other things. It's a willingness to treasure him above everything else. 
True worship is finding our greatest satisfaction in him. Again, I want to remind you of the words of John Piper. These words have carried me through many, many years. He said, God is most glorified in us. We were most satisfied in him. This is the essence of her example to us. This is the essence of, of Christians' worship of a holy and righteous and gracious and just God that we are willing to do whatever it takes to demonstrate to Christ our supreme love and our supreme joy. This right here, brothers and sisters, is the heart of the text. This is the point that Mark is driving at. And then in verse 10, we come to the other bookend. This is where we kind of wrap up this little section. And Judas Iscariot says, it says, And Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Mark abruptly kind of shifts this story to tell us how the wishes of the Pharisees are about to come true. Judas, one of the apostles, one of the chosen, one of the closest to Jesus, went of his own accord to the chief priest. Notice that he went of his own accord. And I want you to notice also the money is actually kind of an afterthought here. It's not the thing that motivated him initially. Now, none of the gospel writers actually tell us exactly what the motivation really was. They don't say, this is why he did this, why he betrayed Jesus. They just say that he simply went and that he did it. Many scholars have speculated that maybe, maybe Judas was disillusioned, you know, that, that Christ actually isn't the Messiah he was expecting, that he's not the warrior king who's going to ascend the throne and lead this military effort to throw, overthrow Rome that they expected him to be. Right? Others have speculated that maybe he's upset about Jesus' indifference about such, so much money that the waste of $30,000 in our terms really kind of like took him aback, like, you know, because resources back then were scarce. Whether it was personal greed or whether it was just a need for money for the ministry, he possibly was upset about it. Some think that it was a combination of both the disillusionment or the frustration over money. I think it's probably a combination of both as well. Right? I think, you know, I think Judas just basically got fed up. Because again, Judas went to the chief priests on his own. He didn't they didn't come to him. Right? And so he's probably frustrated and simply just giving up on the idea that Jesus is going to be this Messiah to make, to, to, to make himself king and that Judas was not going to be the VIP in the kingdom that he expected. That's just my personal feelings on that. But the truth is it doesn't matter what the motivation is. What matters is the fact that Judas did betray Jesus willingly of his own accord, proving that ultimately he was not an insider at all. He was an outsider. And no one saw it except Jesus. He was in that moment, right? He, in that moment, stands in complete contrast to this woman, by the way, who is an example of true faith. You see, she sacrificed money for her faith. He sacrifices faith for money. She sacrificed an enormous sum for her faith. He sacrifices faith for a little bit. You see, true worship is when we value God above all other things. That's when we, that's what we see in her. The exact opposite, by the way, what we see in Judas. He valued other things above Christ. 
And that's why he could walk away. That's why he can leave the faith. So when you ever wonder why somebody can leave the faith is because there's something in this world they value more than they, they value God. Which helps us to see another common theme that we've been talking about throughout chapter 13. And that is following Jesus is really easy when it doesn't cost you anything. It's easy to worship Jesus when the sun is shining. It's easy to say praise the Lord when life is good. But what about when the storm comes? What about when it all falls apart? What about when the world hates you as it hates him? What about when your faith actually will cost you something? What then? This is why true worship of God is valuing him above everything. Because when the world takes everything from you, you still have it all. I'm going to say that one more time. This is why true worship is valuing him above everything. Because when the world comes and takes everything from you, you still have it all. That's the truth. That's what it means to follow Jesus. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.